This is Stacey Harbaugh and Sean Bull with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The Hamas attack on Israel has Senator Temi Baldwin joining the call for President Biden to reimpose a freeze on $6 billion in Iranian oil revenue that has been released in a prisoner swap agreement. In a statement, Baldwin said the funds should be withheld until it becomes clear that Iran has no part in the attack. Baldwin joined the bipartisan group of senators who are calling for the funds to be frozen, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. Iran has contributed to training and other support for the military wing of Hamas, but it remains unclear whether the Iranian government assisted in or had advanced knowledge of this attack, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said this week. The state assembly could still consider impeaching Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasiewicz after she rules in a case involving legislative district boundaries, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said today. Voss's statement seems to suggest that the threat of impeachment hinges on how Protasiewicz rules in the case, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The liberal justice has refused to comply with calls to recuse herself from the case because she called current legislative maps rigged during her campaign. Two conservative former Supreme Court justices who advised Voss at his request opposed the idea of impeaching Protasiewicz over her ruling. Lawmakers in the Republican-controlled state Senate listened skeptically today to witnesses who urged them to support Governor Tony Evers' plan to extend a federal child care subsidy with state funds. The Democratic governor's proposal would devote $365 million to child care subsidies that have been included in the federal child care accounts program, launched during the COVID-19 pandemic emergency. Funding for that program is set to run out in January, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. The governor's proposal also included a guaranteed 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave for employees, a $66 million allocation for UW system campuses, and $200 million for a new engineering building on the UW-Madison campus. Dan Nodal, a Republican senator from Germantown, said he is wary of government stepping in to assist needlessly with childcare. Republican Dan Fion of Fond du Lac said that after the hearing, he will look at how Paid family leave programs have been implemented in other states. Employees of the state of Wisconsin rallied on the Capitol steps this week to demand a 4% pay raise that was granted in the state budget that Governor Tony Evers signed in July. The raises await final clearance from the state legislature's Joint Finance or Joint Committee on Employment Relations. The committee co-chairman, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, said in September that he would block pay raises for University of Wisconsin system employees until the system cuts spending on diversity, equity, and inclusion policies. Workers at the rally complained Tuesday that their pay was being held hostage for partisan political aims, WKOW-TV reports. Now, Voss said Sunday on a Channel 27 news program that he was prepared to compromise on DEI policies if the university system was also willing to compromise. More cigar bars that permit smoking on the premises could open in Wisconsin under a bill currently seeking co-sponsors in the state assembly. The bill would loosen the ban on smoking in public places that took effect in 2010. That law exempted cigar bars in business at the time, but prevented new businesses from allowing smoking indoors. Under the proposal co-written by Republican Nate Gustafson of Nina, 
Qualifying businesses would have to earn at least 15% of their incomes from sales of cigars and pipe tobacco. A Milwaukee City Council committee has signaled support for the bill, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. But opponents include the American Cancer Society, the American Heart Association, the American Lung Association, the Wisconsin Association of Local Health Departments and Boards, and other health advocacy organizations in the state. A natural gas leak caused by a construction crew forced the evacuation of two west side buildings this morning, the Wisconsin State Journal reported. The crew struck a four-inch gas main at about 9 a.m. during drilling operations in the 6400 block of Enterprise Lane. Arriving firefighters discovered pressurized gas blowing dirt out of holes spaced 50 feet apart, a fire department official said. Building occupants got the all-clear to return at 9.48 a.m. after the leak was shut off. A program to help teens and young adults earn their GED and a driver's license has exhausted its funding from the Madison School District. Operation Fresh Start's legacy program helps participants get on their feet while they gain experience working on public improvements or affordable housing. But the Madison Metropolitan School District reduced its funding by about half in the budget for this fiscal year, which ends June 30th. Executive, Di- Executive Director Greg Markle tells the Capital Times that the program has already enrolled all the students it can, with the $133,000 the district allotted it this year. School board member Savio Castro says he will propose a budget amendment to the board this month, restoring $117,000 to the legacy program. Markle says the money would enable Operation Fresh Start to enroll another 20 to 25 students in the legacy program. In addition, Markle said the nonprofit will dedicate another $500,000 to the program if the amendment is approved. And now, on to today's top stories. Today, the State Assembly voted along party lines to pass three controversial bills targeting transgender Wisconsinites. These bills are on an unusually fast track, going to the floor just one week after two assembly committees discuss them in public hearings. All three have corollary bills in the state Senate, which are currently in committee. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the story. In 1998, two men tortured and beat Matthew Shepard, a gay student at the University of Wyoming, Laramie. Shepard died from his injuries after several days on life support. That was 25 years ago today. Also today, the Republican-held State Assembly passed three bills targeting transgender Wisconsinites. Representative Melissa Ratcliffe, a Democrat from Cottage Grove, says, That this chamber would take up such hateful legislation on the anniversary of Matthew Shepard's murder may not be intentional, but it's certainly salt on a wound for our LGBT community. One bill would mandate that schools' sports teams across the state be divided on the basis of the participant's sex and not their gender. Another bill would put the same restrictions on the athletic teams at the universities of Wisconsin and at Wisconsin's technical colleges. State Republicans like Barbara Dittrich of Oconomowoc point to Title IX, arguing that it's unfair to allow transgender women to compete against cisgender women. And that law really broke open opportunities for women especially to have their own separate categories to compete in sports. Who would have thought that 51 years later, we would have intelligent adults claiming that they don't know what a woman is? Numerous organizations have registered their opposition to both bills. 
Among those opposed is the Wisconsin Interscholastic Athletic Association, or WIAA, which regulates all high school sports. And the WIAA already has policies in place for transgender athletes. Under those policies, trans boys who have started testosterone are only eligible for male-designated teams, and trans girls may only participate on female-designated teams after one calendar year of testosterone suppression therapy. If a transgender athlete has not started to medically transition, they must participate on teams that match their assigned-at-birth sex. Another bill on the assembly floor would prohibit gender transition medical intervention for people under 18, banning puberty-blocking drugs, hormone therapy, or other interventions. Minors could still receive that same care in order to treat ailments like cancer or serious injury. Under the bill, medical providers could lose their license if they provide gender-affirming care. Representative Robin Vining, a Democrat from Wauwatosa, says that this bill is part of a nationwide conservative campaign. The sample legislation provided to the drafter came from a right-wing group called the Family Policy Alliance. If you go to their website, you will likely see a banner across the landing page, quote, Election 24, can social conservatives swing the election? And Representative Jody Emerson, a Democrat from Eau Claire, says that there are Republicans who oppose such legislation. She quoted Chris Christie, who said in a recent interview, No one loves my four children more than I do and my wife does. And no one knows what's better for our children than we do. Representative Melissa Ratcliffe has a transgender son. She says that when her son came out to her, she knew her response would color their relationship moving forward, for better or for worse. My son and other members of our transgender community know exactly who they are. And ultimately, that's what the vile hatred and intolerance of this legislation and hate of our transgender community seeks to destroy. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss of Racine County criticized his Democratic colleagues for using what he considers divisive language. No one in this chamber hates anyone unless you want to use empty rhetoric to substitute for your lack of a policy position on something that's really important for our society. Meanwhile, the state Senate Committee on Health is holding a public hearing today on a series of bills, including a corollary bill to prohibit gender-affirming care for minors. The Senate bills on sex-designated sports teams were both referred to a separate committee in August. No public hearings have been scheduled for these bills. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Mazo Beach is a small, sandy stretch along the Wisconsin River, north of the city of Mazamani. For decades, it was a popular spot for nude bathing and a safe space for LGBTQ folks, but it was closed in 2016 after decades of conservative outcry. Now it's being used as an example of why the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources needs to amend its rules and restrict all nudity on publicly managed lands. Reporter Sarah Gabler has the story. Two bills before the Wisconsin legislature would criminalize all public nudity and ban minors from attending any event with adult nudity. These bills were prompted by the World Naked Bike Ride and the circulation of a photograph of a minor at an event this summer. The Madison Police Department investigated the attendance and photographing of the minor and found no grounds to pursue legal action. The move to criminalize public nudity is part of a broader tightening of restrictions on public expression, which are surfacing in weird places, like a recent set of rule changes put forward by the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. 
buried in a set of property management rule amendments at the DNR, is a slight but far-reaching proposal. The rule change would restrict all public nudity on DNR-managed lands. One of our listeners brought this proposed change to the WORT News Department's attention. Currently, there is no restriction against nudity in the DNR administrative rules. There isn't even a definition of nudity. The proposed changes are the first related to visitor behavior in nearly 10 years, and they introduce a broad definition of nudity, which makes nine specific references to detailed genitalia, which all must be covered from public view. The proposed rules add that any form of nudity is impermissible on DNR lands. All of the DNR's administrative rules have the full force and effect of law, but they don't create any penalties. And that's where the two Senate bills come in, one of which would make all public nudity a Class A misdemeanor subject to a $10,000 fine. Also buried within the proposed DNR rule changes is an explanation of the need to ban nudity on DNR lands. The document cites the prevalence of nude bathing, misconduct, and public sex acts at a Mesomani day use area, commonly known as Mezo Beach. But the DNR closed access to that beach in 2016. Even before the beach was closed, the surrounding community seemed to have accepted the situation. The DNR document ironically includes this point, saying that, quote, nudity has become commonplace at Mazomani, and now people who choose to go there expect nudity, and thus there is no complaint or disturbance, unquote. The reason Mazo Beach was closed has everything to do with who frequented the beach, as WORT reporter Sean Bull analyzed in his profile of Mazo Beach last year. Over time, Mazo Beach coalesced into a haven for nudists, LGBT folks, and the left. By the late 90s, the Christian right could no longer ignore such an obvious target and began a decades-long campaign to close it. Public nudity in Wisconsin is attracting national attention. The proposals come as part of a conservative push to end the world's naked bike ride, a push which is fueled by conservative rhetoric about indecency and childhood innocence. Speaking with conservative talk radio, WIBA, Dane County Supervisor Jeff Wiegand took aim at Madison police while promoting the Senate bills to ban all public nudity. Well, if there's ever any question about if the media is in the back pocket of the liberal politicians, then this story proves it. For them to give cover to a corrupt and inept police department that we have in Madison right now is shameful. For anyone to try to stand up and defend allowing a little girl to ride around naked. That is shameful. It is absolutely disgusting. Wiegand and the proposed Senate bills take aim at non-sexual nudity with the effect of limiting expressions of protest and body positivity. Peter Keating, an organizer for the World Naked Bike Ride, told WORT yesterday that the goal of the event is to protest oil dependence and foster body positivity. For Keating, the proposed Senate bills mistakenly conflate sexual and non-sexual nudity, something which is established in the current law. There's nothing, indeed, sexual at all about riding a bicycle any more than taking a shower or many other things that are done without clothing. I would say that they see nudity in and of itself as being inherently sexual, and I say that's nonsense. Amendments to the DNR's administrative rules go before the Natural Resources Board for adoption. The period of soliciting comments on the economic impact of these rules ended last week. The economic impact statements related to the proposed amendments will be analyzed 
and then come up for a future public hearing. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Sarah Gabler. Secretary of State Sarah Godlewski is on a press campaign to make the responsibilities of her office more transparent. The move is in response to what she calls years of, quote, power grabs that are muddying the waters surrounding her role. Secretary Godlewski reached out to WORT's local local news department to publicize four core goals to effectively serve Wisconsin. She spoke with WORT news producer Faye Parks earlier this afternoon. Thank you for joining me, Secretary. Well, thanks for having me, Faye. It's wonderful to be here. So to start, what responsibilities do you have as Wisconsin's Secretary of State? So when I was appointed by the governor this spring, one of the first tasks that I did was make sure that I had all the state statutes that we were responsible for, as well as found out there were federal actions that we needed to do, and talk to fellow secretaries of state across the country to learn more from what they were doing. And I think what is was really interesting is how much I didn't even know about the Secretary of State. I think some folks believe it's just a you know, constitutional office that might just be more celebratory or ceremonial than anything else. And what's interesting is we do everything from supporting local businesses and economic development to working with local governments and clerks to even international work. So your press release mentions power grabs that have caused confusion around your position. Can you tell me more about that? Well, we know for the last few years that there have been a lot of politicians that have been attacking these independent constitutional offices. We saw it with my previous office as state treasurer when there was actually a constitutional amendment to get rid of it. And we have been seeing it with the Secretary of State's office. Sometimes it makes it hard to make sure that you can do everything that you're supposed to be doing for Wisconsin. You outlined four goals in your press release. The first is to modernize your office and improve transparency. What would that entail? One of the interesting aspects of the office, as I mentioned, is the work that we do when it comes to internationally, if you want to expand your business or there's an adoption paperwork or vital records. But right now, in order to do that work, you either have to come and visit me in my office in the Capitol in Madison, or you have to use snail mail. And that's not efficient. It's not in the 21st century, and there's all sorts of barriers that that creates. And so we're right now working on a modernization effort that's going to be providing more of these services online, which I think is really important so people across the state can be easily getting what they need from us. We're also going to be making sure that we do a lot with record keeping. We want to make sure that we are digitizing all of our records and we have a searchable database because that's really important in making sure with transparency and accountability. And so that is another big project that we are working on. We're also working on things with accessibility. So making sure that our services are available in multiple languages and that they meet ADA requirements. That is a few things that we have underway. And I will tell you, when I got there, we were behind, for example, in processing a lot of these business requests and requests from Wisconsinites. And since taking office, we have cut that processing time in half. 
and that is an exact result of the modernization work that will continue from my office. The second goal is to support county and municipal clerks. What kind of support do they need? We have a unique relationship with clerks from collecting different records, and we know that they are overworked and they're leaving. They're leaving their career because of the attacks and threats that they are facing. And so something that we are working on is we want to make sure that we are helping to build capacity and support and be their advocate. And so whether that is looking at ways that we can have university or trade schools or high school students that are providing support to helping to make sure folks know about what work the clerk does and how it's a great career opportunity because their role is so important to their communities. We just can't afford to have these vacancies. So the third goal is to, quote, defend democracy, unquote. You pointed out that you don't administer elections. Can you give me the rundown on what you are responsible for in the democratic process? So this is what I think really unique in going back to these federal kind of procedural requirements that we do, whether it is we witness and validate the certificate of votes, we receive and maintain the electors votes and that electoral college for Wisconsin. We countersign when it comes to federal elections like the U.S. Senate. We're responsible for maintaining and authenticating the signatures and seals when it comes to our county clerks. And then we collect all oaths of office and maintain them for elected officials. And then we are the central repository for redistricting plans. So this is just a handful of things amongst much longer laundry list. But for us, I think something that is very clear is while we do not administer elections, we're continuing to see our democracy be attacked. And as I mentioned, you know, whether it is clerks that are being threatened to the attacks that we're seeing with Janet Proasewicz and trying to remove her from the oath of office to the mis and disinformation. I mean, there was so much misinformation about our office and what we do and what we're trying to do. So for us, we're trying to think through how can we best be a defender? And finally, you are looking to expand Wisconsin's economic development, something you started as state treasurer. Can you give me more specifics on that? So we lead as $4 billion trust fund, and the proceeds for that fund help our public schools, particularly when it comes to purchasing books and technology. Another unique part of that fund is we help finance projects across the state. For example, we've done over 600 projects that have equaled about $300 million. These are everything from expanding high-speed internet to getting rid of lead laterals to helping local communities with renewable energy projects. And so that is something that we really want to make sure we are continuing to do because it's so important for our local communities. The other unique thing that I found out when I went and talked to my fellow secretaries of state goes back to that unique international connection. Think of it like a, whether it's like a by Delaware or by Iowa, it's kind of like a by Wisconsin. And how are they advocating for the businesses and industries in their state that is critical to not only the economic development, but good opportunities and good wages for workers. And so that is something that we are looking at as another really great opportunity for this office to, to add value. 
And we want to make sure that when it comes to the Secretary of State's office, we're doing everything we can to make a difference and deliver in a meaningful way. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Secretary Godlewski. Yes, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. This week, Transparency Talk gets back to basics. Open government attorney Tom Kamenick and WORT's Dylan Brogan are here to explain one of Wisconsin's key government sunshine rules, the Open Records Law. As always, this conversation is not intended to be specific legal advice, but rather a discussion of general legal issues. It's that time again. We're talking transparency, and we're with Tom Kamenick. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Dylan. It's uh, great to have you here. I'm so glad you're continuing this tradition of WRT's transparency talk with me. Yes, I was always very envious that Jonah got to do this segment, so I'm happy to, to pick up the baton. And we're going back to basics today about the importance of transparency in government, and that ultimately comes down to a few important laws, including the open records law in Wisconsin. Tell us about that. Why is this open? What is the open records law, and, and, and why is it important for people to know about it? It's a set of statutes in Wisconsin's law that ensure records of government agencies and activities are available for anybody to inspect or copy, except in very specific, narrow circumstances. So it's government records. They work for us. We are really the boss when it comes down to it, both as the taxpayers who provide the funding and as the voters who make the selections of our leaders. The basic principle is that government records are our records. Yeah, and and, and it certainly has a accountability, right? This is how you hold public officials and governments accountable. Yeah. So the law says that records of every state and local authority, that's the official word the statute uses, is authority, are subject to the law. Uh, Wisconsin's law does not cover other states' records or federal government records. This is just Wisconsin. But it's very broad. It covers every branch, so legislative, judicial, and executive branches. And it covers every level of government, starting at the top, at the state, and our governor, Tony Evers, all the way down to your local elected officials like school board members and city council members. And would you say that Wisconsin has a strong open records law compared to other states? I know you live in Wisconsin, but do you you know about other states? uh, Do they have similar laws? There's a lot of differences in the details, but... This what I was just talking about, the scope of the law, the breadth of it, it, Wisconsin's is very good. There are some states where it only applies to executive branch agencies and not the courts or not the legislature. Or there's even some states where it only applies at the local level and not the state level. So Wisconsin has a really broad scope. So what is a record? Like what are people asking for when they ask for a record? This is another good thing in Wisconsin is that we define what's a record very, very broadly. It's literally written to say that any material in the possession of a government authority that has any information on it qualifies as a record. So you start off with this really broad scope. There's a couple exceptions carved out in that definition. One of the big ones is that drafts, notes, preliminary documents are not records as long as they're being kept for the creator's personal use. Typically, once they're shared with somebody else, they lose that protection. 
Well, let's get into the exceptions then. I know one that I've, when I'm reporting on the school district that I run into a lot is FERPA. Yeah, the Family Educational Something Rights Protection Privacy Act. Act. Yeah, I always forget what it is exactly. But yeah, generally school records are off limits. So are medical records. There's lots of specific statutes where legislatures have said these are off limits. But also the courts get involved sometimes. So the Wisconsin Supreme Court has created a couple of blanket exemptions. One of the big ones is prosecutor files. So your district attorney's files are pretty much off limits. So is anything that's attorney-client privilege because government officials and government agencies, they have their own lawyers too, and they're getting legal advice. And the legal advice they're getting and the conversations they're having with their attorneys, those are usually off limits. But there's also this thing called the balancing test, which is this very gray area. This is often where the fights occur because the courts have said that on an individual basis for each record, you need to weigh the competing interests for and against disclosure. So on the one side of the balance, they might look at uh, that these records should be disclosed because they involve high ranking officials, you know, high level administrators or even elected officials or there's misconduct involved. The courts have said that there's a very high public interest in learning about misconduct, even at the the lower levels of rank and file government employees. On the other side of the equation, though courts uh, and government custodians look at public interest in not disclosing records, things like safety. If releasing records would put somebody's physical uh, safety at risk, they're not gonna do that. They also look at privacy issues, especially when victims are involved. Okay, so we established kind of the basics of what you can ask for and who's uh, and who's subject to the open records law. But as a private citizen or or an attorney or whoever, um, you can't just ask for a record and get it for free, can you? There is a cost sometimes. That's right. The law has uh, specific provisions for charging fees. And it says that government custodians can charge the, quote, actual necessary and direct costs for a few different things. And the two that come up the most often are uh, reproduction. So making photocopies, typically they can charge fees for that. And they can also charge location fees, meaning basically the time that they spend looking for the records uh, they can charge for. Yeah, that location thing is interesting because, you know, let's just say... We'll take the school district. If they have a really crappy system where it's really labor intensive to find a document, they have it, but it just takes a while to get it. Is there any onus on them to like get a better system? Not really. It's unfortunate. So it's one of the worst things about Wisconsin's law. A lot of states don't have this kind of location cost. Uh, just allowing that creates a lot of perverse incentives for government custodians to keep their records in shoddy, disorganized manner, because then if they get asked for copies, they can say, it's going to take us 100 hours and it's going to cost you thousands of dollars, at which point most people just go away because they can't afford that. You know, I don't like Wisconsin's location fees. They're they're difficult to challenge because the... Uh, you know, all the relevant information is on their side. You know, if they claim it's going to take us 20 hours, it's difficult to prove that they're wrong about that. Absolutely. And and another uh, challenging part of the open records law is just how long do you have to wait? What is a reasonable amount of time for a government entity to hand over what you are lawfully allowed to see? That's another weakness in Wisconsin. Uh, Some other states have strict deadlines on how long it can take before they have to turn over the records. Wisconsin's law just says, quote, as soon as practicable and without delay. Now, what does that mean? 
Nobody knows. Courts haven't given us a lot of guidelines on how long is too long. Uh, the, the attorney general has a compliance guide, which is a really helpful document where it says that, that they think about 10 business days is pretty reasonable for most simple, straightforward requests. But it's a practical matter. A lot of them take a lot longer than that. You know, It depends on a lot of things. How big is your request? How complex is it? What kind of resources do the, does this agency have? Are you asking the DOJ itself or are you asking your uh, your local town officials for records? All right. Well, that's the basics of the open records law. And Tom Kamenick, we just really appreciate you walking us through it. And we can't wait to talk about the open meetings law in the near future. That'll be the next show. And remember, everybody, if you don't ask, you won't know. <laughs> it's rainy. It's cold. Fall is here and trout season is coming to an end. Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hasberg help break down where the fish are biting around Dane County on this week's Fishy Business. Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, it is cold. It is rainy today. It is officially uh, uh, feeling like fall. It's been officially fall, I guess, for a little while now. But today finally actually feels like it. Uh, so uh, let's just starting off right there. Uh, how How's the fishing been around Madison lately? Well, yeah, well, the conditions aren't, uh, you know, kind of those ideal summer temps to be out in a boat, the fishing's actually great in the fall, and it's been getting better with these cooler temps. Bait fish tend to move in shallow this time of year, looking for a little warmer water, and the and the, the game fish that eat those fish follow them. So um, they're they're in shallow now too. So a lot of shore anglers are having good luck with smallmouth and walleye, uh, but the panfish folks are getting fish too as those fish move into into shallower bays as as they all get ready for winter here. And that winter is going to come sooner than we think. It always does. It never feels like fall is quite long enough. So let's sort of dive into it a little bit uh, and get into some individual bodies of water, starting off with Lake Mendota. What's been happening over there? Well, uh, like I mentioned, a lot of the your walleyes and smallmouth bass are, are that have been hanging out on the mid-lake humps all summer, are they're still finding fish out there, but a lot of those fish are starting to move in to shallow, shallower weed lines. Um, so a lot of folks are picking fish up on weed lines and right in the weeds. Uh, the folks that fish places like the University Shoreline down by the Union and Tenney Park have been reporting good walleye action, uh, mostly in the evenings, but, you know, on a cloudy day. Uh, you can also find those fish up shallow and, and feeding pretty well. Uh, and the, the bluegills and panfish have also uh, been moving in shallower, so folks have been finding those in some of your shallower inlets and bays around town. And uh, the, the pike are on Lake Mendota, which are, uh, plentiful and large. I mean, they've been active all summer, and, and that action continues to improve as these temps come down. And now moving on over to Lake Monona, what's been all happening over there? I know uh, October is uh, usually in a pretty good month for musky fishing, if I'm not mistaken there. What's what's all happening over on Monona? That's right. Yeah, the musky fishing is starting to pick up as these uh, water temps come down with this cooler weather. Uh, we sell musky suckers here at the shop, so those are Suckers that are anywhere from 12 to 16 inches long, so that's a, a very large bait that you throw out, you know, usually on a bobber behind a boat, and I've been selling a lot of those. So a lot of folks getting out, and I've been hearing some good reports of some really nice muskies being picked on, uh, picked up on Lake Monona and Wabisa. But, um, you know, as far as other fish go, the, the bluegill bite has been really good during the day down at the Monona Terrace uh, by the wall there. 
And then also in the area they call the Triangles and Monona Bay along Brittingham Park over there, the, the bluegills have started to move in there. And that's um, a very popular ice fishing spot. So, yeah, you, you know that winter's on its way when the bluegills and crappies start to move into Monona Bay. So, yeah, but fishing's been great on, on Lake Monona. And now moving on over a little bit, let's take a look at Wingra. Uh, I know there's muskie in there as well, but what are we all seeing out of, out of Wingra? I have heard about a few nice muskies coming out of there. Uh, not the giants that you see on Lake Monona typically, but also some really nice largemouth bass uh, coming out of there lately. A lot of small bluegills up in the lake itself, but they have been getting some nicer bluegills in the spillway um, kind of uh, by the hospital over there where the, where the Lake Winger drains out uh, into Winger Creek. Uh, so they've been getting some nice uh, panfish down there. But there again, you know, when the fish start to stack up there, you know winter's not far away because they're, they're looking to get into their shallow, shallow winter holding areas. And now moving over to Wabisa. Now you said that you heard a good muskie bite coming out of there, but what else is happening over on Wabisa? Yeah, I mean, the muskie bite's good. There's a good uh, pike bite. Well, the, the northern pike bite all, all across the chain is good. There's just a really great population of pike out there, most of them in that 20 to 30-inch range. But um, the panfish bite down on uh, Wabisa uh, continues to be good. Also, those fish are moving that were out deep are moving in shallow again, just like on Monona. And then um, some walleyes are being picked up in the Babcock Park area down towards Bible Camp on that southeast end of Lake Wabisa. And now the last lake that I think we're going to look at today is Kaganza. Have you heard anything coming out of there? You know, I haven't. Uh, I, I guess, I mean, I've heard of a couple of people going down there. I just haven't heard of any hot and heavy action. Uh, you know, the the like the other lakes on the chain i'm sure the bluegills down there that were out deep are again moving into shallow weedy areas and um, i have heard about a little bit of walleye action uh, near the state park on the east end of the lake there so there are fish being caught down there it's just that's the farthest lake from from the physical location of the store here so i don't get a ton of people that come all the way up here to buy bait or that buy bait and drive all the way down there so but uh yeah it's um Fall, fall is a great time to be out fishing, and, and uh, you know, the temp's coming down and the fish are hungry. And now I want to shift a little bit here into trout fishing. Now, this Sunday is the last day of inland trout season, and it's looking like it's going to, uh, uh, we were talking before we started recording here, looking like it might be a little bit flooded. Those are maybe not flooded is the word I'm looking for, but a little bit full, those rivers with the rain that we're looking at over the next couple of days here. So what have you been hearing and sort of what, what are you sort of anticipating for the next couple of days of trout season here? Yeah, this rain that's coming through is, you know, the, it, it really just depends on how much we get, but even more how fast we get it. So if we get, you know, a downpour that comes through, that's going to wash a lot of silts and stuff into the rivers and make them cloudy and, and a little difficult to fish. But if it comes down steady and, and kind of slow, then, you know, that a lot of that water tends to get picked up by the ground, especially with how dry it's been this fall and summer. So, um, you know, I guess it's, we'll, we'll just have our fingers crossed and hope maybe, maybe Sunday, you know, the last day of the trout season, it'll be some good conditions to get out there and, and enjoy the, the season ender, which is, you know, at least from my perspective, uh, you know, always kind of a sad time, but uh, it'll be back soon enough. The end of trout season for me always sort of signals it's time to bundle up and just sort of wait it out until next spring when trout season opens back up and then feels like the trout season is when I'm happy to go outside. When it's not trout season, it's usually 
cold and crappy out and I don't want to be out. So that's sort of what it signals for me. Uh, and I think that's just about all the time we have for today, Pat. Just uh, real quick before we wrap up, do you have any uh, fall fishing, uh, anything people should know for fall fishing, any advice you have? Well, just that obviously winter is on its way. And, you know, if we get a nice day here, get out and enjoy it while you can because soon we'll have ice. And, I mean, personally for me, I enjoy the ice, but, uh, you know, a lot of people like to stay inside in the wintertime. So get out there and enjoy the great fishing that fall has to offer while you can. Well, thank you again for talking with me this week, Pat. Remember, you can hear an updated fishing report anytime you want just by calling 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thanks again, and good luck out there. Thanks, Nate. Always a pleasure. Take care. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Forward Madison FC are staring down a potential playoff berth for the first time since their 2019 inaugural season. And it all comes down to this Saturday's massive final home match of the campaign, hosting high-flying Union Omaha. As rivals to Madison Southwest... Games versus the Owls tend to be high energy and entertaining, and the game day atmosphere at Bree Stevens Field will only add to the frenetic feeling as playoffs are on the line. Here's Forward Focus. Hello again to everyone listening to WORT online and at 89.9 FM on your radio dial. Welcome to another edition of Forward Focus, a segment devoted to any and all things Forward Madison FC, Wisconsin's only fully professional soccer team. I'm one of your hosts, Grant Peters, assistant editor for the FMFC-themed publication New Dog Mazine. Joining me as always is the editor of NDZ and the producer of Forward Focus, Andrew Schmidt, along with the Director of Public Relations for Forward Madison FC, Evan Warwick. In our last segment, FMFC were preparing for three of their last four matches of the regular season, with two being on the road and one back at the friendly confines of Bree Stevens Field. With the playoffs still in reach and every point invaluable, the first match was a trip down south to face talented Charlotte Independence. Following that, the Flamingos would get to play in front of a sold-out crowd at home against USL1 newcomers Lexington SC. Finally, FMFC went back on the road this past weekend with the Rocky Mountains in the background as they took on the hailstorm of Northern Colorado. With a recap of the action and what transpired on the pitch, Evan, take it away. Three fixtures have occurred for the Flamingos since we last talked, an away match against Charlotte, a home tilt against USL League One newcomers Lexington, and a road test against Northern Colorado. On September 23rd, the Flamingos traveled down to North Carolina to face one of the hottest squads in USL League One, the Charlotte Independents. Looking to steal an important three points on the road, the Goes tried to start the scoring off early. When the ball failed to find the back of the net, Charlotte pounced on the opportunity to go in front. In the first minute of added time at the end of the first half, the Independents scored on a Corey Bennett header in the center of the box. While FMFC would try to regroup at halftime, Charlotte would double their lead in the second half and eventually the match ended 2-0 in favor of the hosts. 
Next up was the second to last home match of the regular season against Lexington SC. With Mexican soccer legend Carlos Saucedo in the house, Ford jumped out to an early lead in the 65th minute thanks to a right-footed shot from the longtime tenured Flamingo, Derek Gebhardt. Lexington would eventually tie the scoring up just nine minutes later, but Ford Madison would retake the lead in the 78th minute with a goal from substitute Mauro Sichero. Looking to hang on to the 2-1 lead, Ford Madison sat back defensively, absorbing the Lexington attack. In the 84th minute, Kimball Jackson of Lexington would bundle the ball into the back of the net to even up the score at 2-2, where the match would eventually end with both teams earning a point. Last but not least, the Flamingos traveled this past weekend to Northern Colorado to face another top squad in the league. In need of a win to solidify their playoff spot, Ford Madison tried to make inroads early against a stout Colorado defense. Northern Colorado were able to stymie the attacks by the Goes and launch counterattacks of their own, resulting in two goals from the run of play. The match ended up ending 2-0 in favor of Northern Colorado, defeating FMFC in the last road match of the regular season for the Flamingos. Entering the final match of the season, Ford Madison now face a win-and-you're-in playoff scenario against bitter rivals and top USL League One club Union Omaha. The final match of the year is this Saturday, October 14th at 6 p.m. at historic Breeze Stevens Field in Madison. Last week on NDZ Live, we chatted to Derek Gebhard, who returned this year for his third season with the club, as well as fan favorite and club single-season scoring record holder Christian Chaney. We asked Derek his thoughts a year on from being denied a playoff spot, and Chaney talks about what's different about Madison compared to the other places he's played, and the mentality the team needs as they push to make the USL League One postseason for the first time since 2019. We've come a long way. I feel like the team, we, we got a lot of uh, new guys this year, but we're in a better position right now at this time of the year, so... That's a that's a plus, but uh, I still think uh, this year we've we like shouldn't be in this position. But I guess with that said, we are in a better position and still in a in a good position to to make the playoffs. So we got a couple games left, and uh, at this point of the year, it's good that we're uh, we're still in it. We're not uh, we're not down and out yet. We we can't go back and change anything. Like every, everything's already happened. But what we have is in in front of us. We have two games to. We're and as we as we talk right now, we're still in a playoff spot. So we have two games to to solidify that. And um, that's kind of just how we have to look at it. Just be looking forward and be taking it day by day, trying to trying to have the right attitude and and uh, be getting better day by day and staying together as a team. I think. Yeah, for sure. I would say also just like the respect factor, you know, like we're all grown men and no matter what, you have to remember like even though someone makes a mistake, like nobody in this right. damn field is perfect, you know. Every Absolutely. single person on this field, right. you know, and it's hard, you know, like we all, you know, we all have our ego at some point, you know, we all have our, our differences, but... It's only human, right? That's what another reason why I say this club is a little bit different to me because no, no matter the egos that we have on the field or on the, like within ourselves, in the locker room, we all understand that like we we can't turn on each other, you know. Especially right. in times like this, there's no way you could turn and just start pointing fingers and getting mad. And yeah. like you know, we could be a lot worse off. And even me, like I, I get emotional. You guys see how I play. You guys, you guys yep. see it. It's uh, it's hard for me to control myself sometimes, and it's hard for others. But at the end of the day, when we go back in the locker room, it's just respect. Yeah, you know. And if, if we keep that, I think this as a group, like get we that. could still keep going. On behalf of Grant and Evan, thank you for listening to Forward Focus this season and to all of WRT's donors for your continued generous support.
The fall fundraising drive may have come to a close, though we did miss our goal by quite a large margin compared to past campaigns. The donation page is still open, with all the thank you gifts, and it'll be available through Monday, October 16th. There's still time to donate at wortfm.org, and every bit helps. This nightly news show and segments like this are only possible because of the generosity of listeners like you. The Flamingos are back in action at home this Saturday for their last match of the regular season against their rivals to the West, Union Omaha. This is a win-and-you're-in match for Forward Madison, as three points against the Owls would secure FMFC their first playoff spot since 2019, their inaugural season. Kickoff is at 6 p.m. Central, and we hope to see you all there to cheer on our boys in Madison one last time this season. For WORT, this has been Ford Focus. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Sarah Gabler. Russ Mackey was your headline writer. Special thanks to feature contributors Dylan Brogan, Tom Kamenick, Pat Hasberg, Nate Weggehout, and the Forward Focus crew. Nicole Alley engineered the show, Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull. And I'm your host, Stacy Harbaugh. Be sure to catch every episode of The Local News and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Remember that your donations at wortfm.org help keep the local news on the air. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night. Good night.